Welcome to Eurodial University with Jeff Snyder. My name is Emil Kalinowski, and today we're going back a hundred and some fifteen years. Talk about the crash of 1907 and the myth that we needed a Federal Reserve to prevent anything like 1907 from happening again. Jeff, in the essay for Real Clear Markets that you wrote on May 13th, 2022, titled The Premium for Cash is Presently Enormous, you teach us about what happened in New York City, 1907, as well as Chicago, and develop a story that suggests that maybe the Fed was not really required, that maybe we learned the wrong lessons from 1907. What's going to be the main thesis of today's episode? In a word, elasticity, money elasticity. And this discussion came from a YouTube comment where they talked, where the, I was actually challenged from somebody who was skeptical about the idea of elasticity. Why do we need an elastic money supply to begin with? The answer is because I think in one sense, people have the wrong idea about elasticity. There's sort of a modern concept of it that's, that's you know, sort of 2008-ish, too big to fail. Let's bail out the big banks. And that's what elasticity actually is. So there's a misconception about what elasticity actually means. And then what are the benefits of having an elastic money supply? That's, that's kind of been lost to time, too, because of all the, as we, we're going to talk about a lot, uh, not in this episode, but in other episodes, because of the Volcker myth, the idea that the Fed is elastic and that we only have to, we can only get elasticity in the money supply via this public utility central bank idea. Let's see. So this took place in 1907, which is a little bit a quarter of a century after Walter Badgett's death. And I bring him up because he was the idea that popularized to lend freely at punitive rates to good banks that got caught up in, in the storm. Not too big. And now since then, it's become too big to fail right now. We got to bail out everybody. So he was for saving those that were caught up through no fault of their own systemic fragility brought bringing everyone down, but we didn't want it to propagate through the wider economy, leading to gross unemployment or some sort of recession or depression. Jeff, 1907, whenever it's brought up to me, I'm told that there was one man that saved the entire U.S. economy, and that was J.P. Morgan. Is that actually what happened, or is that an exaggeration, a myth? Perhaps the myth, and it's an exaggeration. Yes, J.P. Morgan did step in. Uh, I think it was November 1907, and with a liquidity pool that it wasn't just his money. He gathered it from amongst his wealthy, ultra wealthy robber baron buddies, and said, "Let's, you know, this is not really good what we're seeing here." And again, going back to what you just said before, Walter Badgett, the idea of central banking, the idea of elasticity itself, really is about what you said, which is. When we get into these, these tight money periods, these deflationary monetary periods, these bank panics, what ends up happening, the worst part about it is that the good banks get thrown in the trash with the bad ones because the public doesn't care. You've got your money in a bank. Do you really know or care if it's a good bank or a bad bank? How would you even know? All you really know is that some banks are failing. And when banks fail without any depository insurance, that means you lose your saving. You lose maybe your life saving. So you just go to the bank, doesn't matter if it's a good bank or bad bank, a sound bank or unsound bank, and you withdraw your cash because information asymmetry demands that you act. And he who acts first is the one who doesn't get screwed. And what, from a systemic perspective, from a governmental perspective, just from a societal and economics perspective, 
There's no reason for this. We needed a, there should be an elastic monetary system that supplies money, as Walter Badgett said, to the good banks. If you've got good collateral, fine, no problem, because we don't need to destroy the entire banking system for the fault of a few bad apples. Now, yes, there's, there's, a, there's times when there's a lot of bad apples doing a lot of stupid things, but that's human beings, not necessarily the banking system. And it certainly doesn't argue for an inelastic money supply. Because as the latter half of the 19th century had shown all throughout the world, these things happened together. The public would get into a panic. They would remove cash from the banking system. And then the whole damn thing would crash and then lead to the worst economic consequences. Not a depression of a very short variety, short but bad, like 1920, 21, or in uh, well, some of the later 19th century in Europe. But you know something along the lines of 1893, a depression that lasted three years. or 1929 to 1933 and beyond. The idea of elasticity of money is to make sure that the economy, as well as the banking system, has enough currency supplied so that it can at least undertake the basics without having to just crash and collapse all over, all around the place. I'd love to do a show with you about the definition of depression because you just said that we had an 1893 depression through 1896. And always in my mind, depressions are much longer affairs and recessions are shorter. We'll have to talk about it in another episode. Jeff, I'm going to introduce an American economist now, Abram Pia Andrew Jr. And he's going to tell us a little bit about cash premiums at that time. Then we're going to segue to a little bit of a story about safes, little safes, people hoarding cash. And then that will then take us to the, the central banks at the time. So there's not enough cash. We'll be learning how much, not enough, what the shortage was. And then where did the cash come from? Well, we didn't have a central bank at the time. So where did it come from? So American economist Andrew, incredibly, in February 1907, he was warning that there was trouble ahead. So he's got his bona fides there. He argued that there was a major panic, imminent, incredible, fantastic. At the time, he was doing a survey of local newspapers and he was trying to come up with a quote for cash premiums according to him by the end of october the cash premium had risen to 3.5 percent which i don't know if that's a lot but apparently it sounds like it was at the time then by november you know, that, 6 started that wasn't just a lot that was enormous and what what uh, andrew had said was that and pointed out that you only saw cash premiums around 3%, 4% on the rarest of occasions. We're talking like France getting invaded by Prussia. We're talking about the Napoleonic Wars in Britain. You know, a 4% Amazing. cash premium was historic. Okay, perfect. Good. Yes, of course, that was when 1815 and 1873 reversed. Prussia War, 1873. Uh, so 3.5%, that's bananas high. And then 4% by November 6th. And then again, November 12th and November 13th, 4%. So unbelievably high rate. If that doesn't kind of, if that's not tangible enough for you, dear audience, here's a wonderful story that JP Morgan actually commissioned Astor Safe Deposit Company on October 26th to survey 33 of New York's companies and what in the safe business and find out how many safes have been rented. And apparently it was 789 safes that JP Morgan was told were being rented 
during the week of the panic, late, late October, early November, which is six times the normal amount. Jeff, people were taking cash literally and stuffing it into a safe because they didn't dare leave it where? In a bank? There was such a shortage. There was a panic. There was panic. And it started with the trust companies. We don't need to get into that necessarily here. But essentially, we had your garden run-of-the-mill variety bank panic, which meant banks that had, the, had their doors closed would never reopen. So whatever cash was available in their safes and their vaults would be used to pay off creditors. Depositors would get screwed. Everybody would lose their money. So you got your money out of the bank. You got your cash, your physical cash. What you actually did was you converted your paper deposit liability into physical cash and then hired a safe deposit someplace and stashed your cash there. Otherwise, you risk losing it. But as you're removing your cash from the bank's vaults, you're removing it from the, the fractional reserve multiplier that was the banking system, which meant that liquidity in all its various forms at that time was drying up all throughout, not just New York, but then New York as the money center for the country led to spillover effects in Chicago, as well as the interior, interior all across the land. Now, there was money available to save the system, not from the Federal Reserve, which didn't exist yet, but from clearinghouse associations in the form of clearinghouse loan certificates. Jeff, tell us about this. Well, most of these banks got together because they were well aware of the dangers of these banking panics. And essentially, these ad hoc networks were developed, usually stacked around regional regions like New York City or Chicago, where the, the uh, clearinghouse associations of these banks functioned in every way like regulators as well as central banks. They had the power to examine individual institutions' books, to go into them in the nitty gritty details and say, I don't like what you're doing here. We're going to kick you out of the association. And any bank that got kicked out of the association, that meant essentially a death sentence. So it was sort of like the Suffolk system in the early 19th century of the United States and in New England, where these, these institutions really had a good idea of what they were doing because they knew when the emergency inevitably hit, when the public started to get panicky and withdraw cash in unusual amounts from the banking system, the good banks as well as bad banks were going to have to deal with that, that situation. And if you already knew ahead of time, what all their banks were doing, then you knew which banks were going to survive and which banks wouldn't because they were relatively sound institutions taking Walter Badgett's advice. And what the clearinghouse associations had authorized was to essentially create a quasi-currency, an interbank token that allowed banks to settle interbank liabilities, interbank debits and credits in using this interbank token, which were called clearinghouse loan certificates, essentially the forerunner of bank reserves for the Fed which allowed these uh, any institution that was a good institution to remain in business because even though it was being withdrawn an excess amount of cash by the public, it could use these clearinghouse loan certificates to settle any of its debits throughout the interbank system and could even use in, be used in some special cases to settle more wider claims against them and against the association at large. So there was a mechanism, these clearinghouse associations, there was a big one in New York, there was a big one in Chicago, that were essentially what everybody imagines the Federal Reserve is today. Now, I'm going to read out some numbers just to give a perspective for, for the audience of how much these associations contributed. Now, to give a perspective here in the beginning, J.P. Morgan, we're told, saved the system. He and his consortium contributed $25 million. Great. Keep that in mind. Thank you very much. That was outmatched surpassed by the Treasury Department, which contributed 
36 million, and then they would keep contributing. So now I'm going to read what the sum total was. According to Andrew, our economist, he believes that around 233 million of cash was extracted in some method or another from national banks located in this city. So we've got a $233 million hole. Now we're going to plug that from where? They reported the banks, the aggregate holdings had dropped by 41 million by December 30, by December 3rd, even though, so Jeff, does that mean that their holdings were 41 million lower at the, towards the end of the year, even though the treasury had deposited on total 72 million plus 70 million in gold, which had arrived into the country. So that's 140 plus they were already behind by two, another 40. So we're at 180 right there, right? Plus Andrew estimates that it was 233. So another 50 million. Oh, I see the national bank note circulation expanded by around 50 million. I get it. I get it. So the treasury deposited 72 million plus we had gold. That's 142 million plus circulation expanded by 50. So now we're at 190, but the bank still said, hey, we're still short 40, even though we've received 190. So that's a total of the 233 million. That's how we arrived at the whole. And that's where the clearinghouse loan certificates came in, right? They deposited 256 million. Incredible. I'm sorry I made a mash of that, a hash of it. But what, what are we trying to tell the audience? That when push came to shove, when the crisis actually hit, the vast majority of the rescue came about through these private ad hoc associations. There was one in Chicago, the one in New York. There was others throughout the rest of the, the country. But essentially that they dealt with this liquidity crisis through these private decentralized means. And it had a very palliative effect, very effective uh, over time. And let's you know, back up a bit. One of the reasons why we're talking about elasticity isn't just because of bankers and Wall Street and the government and these, these treasury deposits and gold flow. Who was it that was buying and renting these safes in New York City? It wasn't, you know, it wasn't the big bankers like JP Morgan. It was business owners who were, who were only interested or their, their biggest interest was ensuring that they had enough cash on hand to be able to meet their weekly or monthly biweekly payroll. And that's really the point here, how a monetary inelastic, inelastic currency situation contributes to the worst possible case. Because if you're a business owner, you've got all your liquid liabilities, your cash tied up in a bank that goes belly up. Now it's no longer there. You don't just lose the access to the currency. You can't pay your workers. And what are your workers going to do? They're going to stop working for you if you don't lay them off to begin with. So lack of money means lack of grease in the machinery of uh, exchange and commerce. We don't have the tools for the commercial uh, commercial industry to be able to hire workers and pay salaries and do all the things that needs to happen. So lack of money isn't just a banking issue. It is a small e real economic issue. Jeff, another important point you want to make in this article to the audience is that not a single trust or bank failed in Chicago during this panic because they went about business differently, which is perfectly fine. But more importantly, later on, what we see is that the Federal Reserve came about because we never wanted to repeat what happened in New York, thereby centralizing a national response. Well, Jeff, maybe centralizing a national response is not the right answer because 
what we saw in Chicago. They went about it differently and they did it successfully. Is that right? Yeah, not a banker trust fail. The difference between Chicago and New York was that the New York Clearinghouse Association did not admit trusts. And what were these trusts? Just briefly, they were essentially the shadow lending, you know, innovators of that day. There were new diff- different types of business forms to try to circumvent regulations. And the New York banks of the Clearinghouse Association, New York said, they're competitors. We don't want them involved. And because they didn't have they didn't admit the trust into the New York Clearinghouse, that's really how the panic began. Knickerbocker Trust was a trust that wasn't that what didn't have access to the Clearinghouse Association's liquidity backdrop or liquidity backstops. Whereas the Chicago Clearinghouse did admit trusts. And so the Chicago experience was by and large so much better than New York. They didn't really get much of a panic in Chicago and nobody failed out west in, the, in that, the, that very crucial monetary region. You also make the point here that the system was not threatened overall, the system's capacity. And that's what prevented a consequence like what we saw in 1929 or 1933. I think that's the overriding point here, that yes, there was a severe contraction in the economy in 1907, early 1908, but it didn't go any farther than that. We didn't have the widespread bank panic. There was a panic. There was Wall Street, you know, stuff on Wall Street. Some New York firms, the trust companies failed. So that happened, but it didn't lead to that systemic rupture that had become commonplace, like in 1893 or again in 1929. The system, decentralized as it was, private as it was, came together at the best possible moment, supplied enough currency to make sure that enough of the system was saved that it didn't diminish future capacity. The banking system didn't suffer, like in 2007 and 2008, a permanent rupture. And we see that in any number of statistics. Milton Friedman put together you know, the loss to depositors, banks, uh, bank failures. There was an uptick in failures, but it wasn't a massive, massive issue that it was made out to be because they had to sell the Federal Reserve on a public that was sort of skeptical. But by and large, Elastic currency through a decentralized mean in 1907 meant, yes, it was depression. It was bad for a while, but it sure as hell wasn't the 1890s and it sure as hell wasn't the 1930s. And the overall point we're trying to make here is that elasticity is not about bailing out the stupid. Elasticity is about making sure that we don't have businessmen having to rent the modern equivalent of safes to store their liquid assets in order to make payroll. We want to make sure the banking system is is liquid enough amongst the good institutions that are operating in it. And yes, there are good institutions that operate in the banking system, that they're all liquid enough that it doesn't create this permanent rupture that interrupts the machinery of exchange across the entire commercial system. Because money and banking are tools for the commercial system to be as efficient and as sustainable as possible. Well, Jeff, thank you very much for that were through history. It was very educational. I appreciate it. Any final thoughts? I thought you summarized it well there, but is there anything that we didn't touch upon? The only thing to add would be that, you know, there are lots of parallels to 1907 through other periods in history. And obviously the views on the Federal Reserve, bank reserves, and all those things about what is actually liquidity have changed over time. But overall, it's the same sort of processes that break down. So even though that was 115 years ago, you still see similarities between then or differences and differences in process between then and today. Thank you, Jeff.